Good morning. This morning, I couldn't help notice I, uh, I'm not a sensitive person, really. And uh, we live in very sensitive times, if you haven't noticed. Everybody's offended these days about something. Everybody's apologized and everybody's offended. And I find myself, I don't usually, but I was a little disturbed as I was looking out today, watching the people come in here, that uh, a number of people were coming in and I, I realized that they had found out that I was preaching and they had their Bible and a pillow with them. Now, I, that, that's hurtful. I want to tell you, I'm, I'm hurt. <laughs> okay, enough of my nonsense. Uh, I need prayer and I believe you need prayer too. So why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for sending your Son as we just sang that he went to the cross for us, Lord, and it was all because of love for us, Lord. Nothing we could ever have done could have brought us to you, Lord, apart from your Son coming down to us and giving himself for us, Lord and living a perfect life for us as well, for our righteousness. So we thank you, Lord. We pray now, Father, that, Holy Spirit, you would come, that you would fill us, that you would make our hearts open, our minds clear, Lord. And when we leave today, may we know that You have spoken to us, and we are ready for change. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Today, I would like to talk from Philippians chapter 2. So if you want to get there now. Again, I'm not one for doing titles for messages many times, but uh, the title I had put for today is, Do You Have Attitude? That word has been used a lot in our present times, I think. You hear a lot about people having attitude, especially in the music field, pop music field, uh, a lot, or even in, in Hollywood. They'll talk about certain people, and... I remember the word attitude, maybe some of you do too, but I can remember being in elementary school and being out of sorts that day or whatever, and the teacher saying, young man, you better change that attitude. And it was always more in the negative way. You very rarely heard, she has a good attitude, or he has a good... It was usually when you heard the word attitude, it was usually, I don't like your attitude. Change that attitude right now, you know, or check your attitude. And... The new version that people like to use of attitude, I've heard people say like, uh, I heard a commentator once say, uh, Mick Jagger, boy, he's got attitude. And he said it in a positive way. Except what I believe he was referring to is more of, a, of an obnoxious type of s- overconfident, of self-confidence, and look at me, I'm really something. I'm, uh, it's all about me and what I do. 
And I've heard that word used a number of times, even with uh, years ago, uh, Frank Sinatra, who was you know, the, the singer of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and then had a revival. And then later on, he, uh, like most of the singers now, like Tony Bennett, you know, when they really are way past their prime, they've lost their real voice. And so they do the duets albums. You know, they'll, they'll invite all the Lady Gaga and when, when Amy, Howe, Amy Winehouse, while she was still alive, I remember she got on his album at Faith Hill and all the names that people are familiar with and buy today. So you sing a song with them and people will buy the album. They're more likely to buy it, you know, even though they're not the main attraction. But I remember on one of there was a duets album and I happened I think Carol and I were at a yard sale and I was looking at a CD it happened to say Frank Sinatra duets and I hadn't heard any of these and I was looking on the back and uh, the singer Bono had been on the album with him and I remember his comment he said Frank Sinatra has attitude you know and if you know anything about Frank Sinatra that attitude when he was up there he, he could be pretty, uh, pretty strong. It was a pretty strong, I know who I am, and if you don't like it, too bad. It was, that's the word. So that's why today I asked uh, for the title to be, Do You Have Attitude? Because the Bible tells us to have attitude. It tells us that we're to have an attitude. But it's a little bit different than the world today talks about attitude. And I'd like to look at that today. And uh, I thought what I'd do is go to Philippians chapter 2. And before we read the verses, the, the text for today is verses 3 to 8. That's what I really want to look at. But again, we just don't take a Bible verses and take it out of context. It's always important you put it in context. That's the way cults are formed. You can pull one verse out and you have a whole religion now, you know, to make it say what you want. You know, so we've got to really be careful with that stuff. So what I'd like to do is start a little earlier in it. I'm going to start at verse 27 of chapter 1 and just read through, just give you the feel. And to give an idea of what's going on, Paul wrote this letter to, to the Philippian church, most likely around A.D. 61, there's some views that say, well, he probably wrote it from 53 to 55, and he was in prison in Ephesus. Others say, well, no, uh, it was probably written from 57 to 59. And stuff. But the, the, the uh, leaders, the people who are uh, the scholars, the theologians, who really have studied and studied this, they look and they say it most likely is that period of time in Acts chapter 28, uh, verses 13 to 34, where Paul was in house arrest in Rome, and he was chained to a guard. He was in his own house, but he was chained 24 hours a day to a Roman guard, and he could have visitors come, and he could share the gospel, and that's what he was doing. I mean, he was making, he took, you know, a bad situation we'd look at, and he made it where he was, you know, uh, preaching, to uh, the Roman guards and the people all around uh, there. So it, it, Paul made the best of it. And throughout the book of Philippians, you see that word joy and joyful is used over and over. And Paul is writing to a church that was under persecution, and he's reminding them that in the midst of that, 
there's always joy to be found in Christ, regardless of that. You know, it never, it never stops. Just because our circumstances aren't what we want them to be, that doesn't mean that there's still a deep inner joy knowing we're serving Christ. And he talks about that, and he talks about uh, there, was, there seemed to be disunity in the church. It seemed to be they needed unity. In fact, our brother, uh, Steve Massaro, about a month ago, I think it was, preached from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, on unity. And Paul, that theme runs through here, and it's going to run a little bit before we get to this. What we're looking at today is really Paul has spoken about the idea of being unified again. And one way of being unified, he's going to tell us when we look, is by having humility and comparing that to the humility of Christ. You want to have, uh, un be unified in that. So, and by the way, the, the main reason why he was writing it is because the Philippian church had sent him a gift. That was why he wrote, but Paul, not wanting to make the most of every opportunity, he thanks him, but then he goes into these church situations. And when he's talking about unity here, you'll see it in, ver in chapter 1, verse 27. Now, Paul, just before that, had talked about he doesn't know what's going to happen. He could be executed, and he would go to be with the Lord, which he said would be much better, he says, if I'm with the Lord. Or he says he may get released and then be able to, to minister to them, he says, and that would be good for them. He says, but, and he starts in verse 27, he says, whatever happens, and that's what he's referring to, whether or not he's going to be executed or whether or not he's going to be released. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Boy, the, these words may be 2,000 years old, but they're for us. Do we live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ? That's quite a, uh, an imperative, quite a command there, to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, then he says, whether I come and I see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know, now watch, that you stand firm in one spirit, there's that theme of unity running there, in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. You hear that idea of unity? One, one. You have to be one. You have to be one here, he says. And he says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. That's, you know, there were, there were Judaizers, the people who were adding, saying, well, you need Jesus, but you also need to follow the laws and to do our old rituals to be saved. And it's not much different today, is it? It's basically what's happening in the Catholic Church. And I say that not to knock the Catholic Church, but to make us aware of that. It's, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need the, the uh, sacraments of the church. Salvation is not, they don't believe, they believe, and you know, people say, well, the Catholic Church believes in justification by faith. That's right. But it doesn't believe in justification by faith alone. That's the whole key. And that was, that was the major uh, argument for the Reformation. That justification is by faith alone. It is by the blood of Christ. What Jesus did is complete. We don't need one thing added to it like that. It's not by what we do. It's what Jesus did. And... We, we have the same, so we're, we're, we're still in the world, we have the same things going on in religion today. It's no different. And he, he says that in any way of those who oppose you, also just those who are persecuting them severely, especially uh, the Jewish, the, other, the real solid Jewish believers that didn't go to uh, Christianity, they were so against 
this. You know, and think about it, Paul, they were trying to kill Paul. Paul was going from town to town, and they were trailing behind, following him, trying to get Paul. They stoned him once. Uh, anyway, he says, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Oop. What happened to the health and wealth and prosperity gospel? Boy, this must be, they must have missed this when they, when they put that in their, uh, their doctrine like that. He says, but to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul was always in his ministry struggling. Like I said, people were always trying to kill him. They were, they were going after him. They were constantly trying to debate him and, and to put him down. And even in the Philippian church, when he writes in chapter 1, he says that there's those who, you know, were basically trying to use the gospel against me. He says, but that's okay as long as the gospel goes out. You know, there's always, there's always that that friction, and there's always a resistance, and there's always opposition, inside the church and outside of the church. So we get to ch chapter 2. He writes, if you have, and again, listen to this theme of unity that's going to come through here, because I want you to see it, because what he's talking about, what we're going to talk about today is the idea of how do we have unity, the same which, you know, which was preached about in chapter 4, in a sense, only this is he's, it's a little different uh, angle here. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and by the way, you're going to see if, 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 and if, he says, four different cases. That word in the Greek also can be used as since, and it means it's a reality in the sense that this, when we say if in our language, we kind of think like it's a possibility or maybe it could happen. But when it's written in the Greek and it means since, it's saying this is a reality. That in other words, if, if you have the encouragement from being united with Christ and you have comfort from his love and you have fellowship with the Spirit, it's a reality. Basically, that's what he's saying there. He says, if any tenderness, or since you have tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, now look, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit. Again, unity, unity, he's saying, and purpose. Now, this is where we get to our text. And I wanted to just put it in context that what's happening, because he's talking about unity here, and then we get to verse 3, and Paul says this. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider other betters than yourselves. Now listen to that verse carefully. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. And just think about that for a minute. Do you feel any conviction? Any kind of the least bit of conviction when Paul says you're not to do anything out of selfish ambition? Now that word ambition, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious if it's a good goal. You know, if, you're, if you have an ambition to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's a good goal. If you have a, an ambition to do good in college, it's ambition that, you know, you get driven by that and stuff. 
but it's the word selfish ambition. It has to do with me. Only about me. It's selfish. It's not, I have an agenda, and I want it done, and I don't care about others. Basically, that's what selfish ambition becomes. It's all about me. You always hear people say that. You know, it's all about you. It's all about you. Well, this is all about us. Not considering other people. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That means empty glory. Again, it's, it's all for me. I want to look good. I want to get the credit. You know, do you ever do things and you like to get the credit? Everybody's just quiet. They're looking at me. <laughs> well, I confess sometimes I have done things and I was hoping somebody would see it. That's, uh, it's embarrassing to say that, but I have a funny feeling if we really could, you know, take your heart right now and project it, a lot of you would share the same thing sometimes. And that's, my wife always has, she's, I learn so much from her because, and she's not in the sanctuary, so I can say this, but she always does things and she always says, we want to wear moccasins like the Indians or the Native Americans, whatever you want to call it. She says, but she says, you wear moccasins. They used to wear them so they don't leave footprints. And she says, we want to leave moccasins. Just do things without having to, you know, to make where everybody knows and nobody knows. And I, oh, it's coming to my mind, and I'm going to say it. I, I used to wonder sometimes, I used to see, a, a, I'd see a big, one of those big black garbage bags. And sometimes it'd be filled with all kinds of garbage by the garbage pail. And I wonder, where did this come from? And then one day I realized, it was about 6 o'clock in the morning, and Carol is going out and through down, up and down the street, and she's picking any garbage up that's on the street before everybody gets up. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. If I was doing that, I'd probably want to do it like, you know, 11 o'clock on Saturday morning when everybody's up there and, you know, hey, Walt, what are you doing? Oh, just picking up the garbage in the neighborhood. You know, it's like that. That's, you know, we, we all want credit. We all want recognition. But we got to be careful, Okay. You, you think about, and when, if we get time today, we'll read about it. I didn't s see what time I started. Uh, but we'll see about, you know, you look at the example of Christ, and then this is what Paul's all going to get to. You know, we all, we all like to be, have some kind of recognition. We all want, but the problem is when we do it at the cost of others, and that's what happens many times here. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Don't make it about yourself all the time, he's saying. Don't just never... You know, there's people sometimes who are task-oriented people and relational people. You know, and somewhere in between there's a balance because I've known task-oriented people who basically get so involved in what they're doing and they kind of forget about people. And they can blow people... You know, they leave a, a, a trail of bodies behind. They get their mission accomplished, but in the process, people are hurt. You know, and is it really necessary to, to get what you want to accomplish and, you know, have all that carnage left behind? Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And on the other hand, if you're a relational person, you've got to be careful to make sure you get things done. 
You know, I'm more of a relational person, and I do have a tendency, I'll put down things to talk to people. But sometimes that I'm scrambling around <laughs> to get it done. So, you know, there's a balance somewhere in between there. But he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now listen, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Does that give you any conviction? Do you always consider others better than yourselves? Do you always think the next person is, you know, you're considering their needs? And that's what it means. It's not saying, it's not saying that other people are superior to me or they're much more talented than me or whatever. It's not that kind of, uh, you know, consider others better than yourselves and, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just a worm in the dirt and, you know, everybody else is. It's not that at all. But when he says, consider others better than yourselves, we always think of ourselves as the most important. But it's putting others, the consideration of others. You know, think about even the simplest things. We have a, f maybe it's a silly example, but I'm thinking, uh, think about if we have a fellowship downstairs and, you know, the food gets put out and all of a sudden the dessert's cart's coming out. You know, and you see one of Joyce Drew's famous desserts. It's like all of a sudden, you know, hey, we better get up there. There's not much before everybody else. You know, we're always, we love ourselves, and that's the truth. We, we care for ourselves. We look in the mirror and we, you know, fix every little hair and pull every little tweeze, every little thing that shouldn't belong there. And the older you get, hair grows all over you. So just, be warned, I want to tell you. You lose it on the head, and it's growing out of your ears, your face, your neck. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But anyway, you'll find out. But, but we take the time, don't we? We take the time to feed ourselves. Or sometimes we'll say, oh, this is my favorite food. I'm going to get it. This, that. It's, it's okay, but do we do that with others? Do we really consider others as much? Are you willing to give up? the last piece of cheesecake on the table for somebody else. Ah, food. That's, Paul's not talking about food. Okay, I will forget. But he is. He's talking about everything here, basically. You know, when we, we have to consider others, we really do. And our natural tendency is we're selfish. And if you don't, if you don't think you're selfish, I am going to say this, and it may sound strong, you don't know yourself. You really don't know yourself. You have not looked in your heart. We are selfish. And to be honest with you, the, the more I grow in Christ and the deeper we go in my heart together, the more he shows me what a cesspool is down there that needs to be. Hey, that's the only time I get an amen when I say about my filthy heart. Is what, Thank you, brother. Yes. <laughs> First amen I got in years, I want to tell you. And it's about my filthy heart. But it's true. It's true. Some of the most... I, I really was privileged to know some guys who were really holy as I was studying and, and growing in the ministry. And I, Those were the guys who used to say to me, I can't believe my heart. They used to say how wicked it is when I thought, you know, the, it seems like the guy, you know, the closer you get to God, the more you see how a, Isaiah 6, right? Woe is me, I'm ruined. Isaiah was probably the holiest guy 
in Jerusalem at the time there when he's called to ministry, and he's devastated. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And what did Jesus say? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's saying, my heart is unclean. He says, and I live amongst the people of unclean. He wanted to throw everybody else in there, too. He didn't want to take a bum rap himself, you know. But he, but he put everybody else. He said, my whole society is wicked, and I'm part of it. I'm wicked, too. And we need to look at that and see our selfishness and repent of it. And you know what? We're going to do that the rest of our life because it's called a sinful nature. And look through the New Testament. If you don't think you're still struggling with the sinful nature, Paul talks about he continually... Look at Romans chapter 7. He says, the things I hate, those are the things I do. He says, every time I want to do good, evil is right there with me. You know, what a wretched man I am. But then he says those good words, who will rescue me from the body of death? Thanks be the God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's our hope. In spite of how wicked we are at heart, at the core, we're wicked. We're selfish. And this is what you know, Paul was trying to bring up to the people. You're selfish. You need to see that. You need to see outside of your own needs and your own wants and see that there are actually other people who have needs, and they're just as good as you. You know, I, I always love when people, I've had people at times say, well, didn't Jesus say, we got to love ourselves? He said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's not what he was trying to tell us when he said, love your neighbor as yourself, to make sure you love yourself first. He's saying that because we do love ourselves. He's saying, you love yourself. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. You'd be doing something. Really, people, we got to wake up. We have to wake up and think more deeply. I always look at preaching. If I can get you to think more deeply, you know, and it's with the Word of God, then it's up to you and God to work it through. But James always comes back to mind. James 1.22. You know, do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. If we have the knowledge of Scripture and we don't apply it, what good is it? It's like having, if you discovered the, the cure for cancer and then you didn't share that, what good is the knowledge? What good is knowledge if it's not applied? You know, what good is biblical information if it doesn't cause transformation? You know, it has to be applied to our lives. And that's the hard work of it. And it takes prayer, and it takes deep thinking, and it takes denying myself. What did Jesus say? If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, he said. That's our greatest struggle, isn't it? To deny ourselves. When we deny ourselves, then we can start to think about others, too. But Paul here is telling me, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, of vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. It's, that's the problem why people don't get unified. Of course, I want what I want, and I want the glory for it. And I'm more important than everybody else. Sometimes we have to be able to let other people's agendas, we have to be flexible. And we have to say, okay, you know what, I can give this up. It's not, you know, there are hills to die on. 
You know, theology is one of them, maybe. Not maybe, it is. When it comes to who Christ is, who God is, who the Trinity is, how we're saved, how we're justified, yes, you die on that hill if you have to. But things that are more about opinion or whether or not we put cushions on the pews or whether we get a, get a pink rug or a black rug in the sanctuary, uh, I'd be against both of those. But if, if, but if we... You know, and we'll get into major battles about these non-essentials, these minors. We major on minors. And Paul's saying, be unified. Be unified. Think of other people. Don't think of yourself. Don't be so self-centered, he said. And maybe we can have more unity here. He said, God bless you. <laughs> he says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he lays on, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Do you ever think about that? That your attitude is to be like Christ's? I mean, we look at Jesus, well, he was the Son of God, and he was... But that's the attitude we're supposed to have. And you know what? This is a command. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, he says. And then look what he says about Jesus. Here, let me get my specs on. He says, who being in very nature God, I'm going to, I almost want to split this for next week, uh, but we'll go through it maybe next week. We'll even go through it in detail. We'll see. He says, who being in very nature God. That means Jesus was God. If he has, when it says the nature of God, he is God. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. He says something to be grasped. Here is God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and he's God, and he's, he doesn't hold on to it. It's not to be grasped. It's not to be to put, grip my fingers around and say, I'm God. He says, I'm going to let all my glory go. He doesn't lose his deity. He's always God. That's why the two natures of Christ, that's why the Council of Chalcedon and the Council of Nicaea, they spent so much time, the great minds of the churches in the 4th and 5th century, coming to, to the place of saying, just what do we believe about Jesus who is he? And that's why we have the Jesus, all God and all man. And there's no mixture of them. It's not a mixture. They make it a point in those uh, councils to make of that. It's two separate natures, but he's together. He's the God-man. He's God incarnate. And he says that, uh, that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but look, he made himself nothing. Now, you think about that. How does the, the, the eternal, self-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful, never-changing God of the universe make himself nothing? Make himself like a man, it says? We can't figure that out. How, that, to me, is, is more of a mystery you know, than Jesus rising from the dead. He's God's the author of life. You know, 
Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke ex nihilo, out of nothing, he created the universe. So bringing back the dead, he creates life. But how does God become man? It's a mystery. We might spend eternity and never be able to understand it if God tried to explain it to us. Like that. He says, in being, and, uh, being very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Whew. You know, think about... I, a, a part of Scripture that always blows me away is John 13, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. I have to tell you, it almost bothers me sometimes. And I think I, I'm probably, I have the same thing Peter has, you know, where Peter said, oh, Lord, Lord don't wash my feet unless you're going to wash my body. I, I, it always blows me away that the disciples are together having the Passover meal and nobody considered to wash each other's feet, which was the custom. Because think about this. They walked in the dirt all day. There were no roads. They were walking in the dirt. There were animals everywhere. And I'm being serious about that. And, you know, animals leave droppings. And in the dirt was the animal droppings. They're walking with open-toed sandals. Their feet were filthy. They stunk. And that's why they would wash them before they would eat, because they, you know, lean, they had that leaning position, that prone position. They would lean, and your feet would kind of be near the other guy. And nobody, dis, nobody would do it. Nobody would think to go over to the master, to Jesus, and say, Lord, let me wash your feet. Now, what does it says? And Jesus knew God had put all things under him. That's what really kills me, that, that verse. It's a, Jesus knew. He was from the Father and he was going back. He knew, he knew he was God. He knew he was going back to heaven. It, all power was given to him. And it says, so he took off his outer garment and he wrapped a towel around him and he got a basin and he washes the stinking, filthy feet of human beings. That, it, it bothers me when I think about that. You know, that, because... It's just, I don't want to see Jesus do that. You know, it's just, oh Lord, I want to see us washing your feet, not you. But Jesus says, I must. You know, I've already washed you, he said, but he's washed them with the truth. But uh, anyway, uh, thinking about that, I had something I was just thinking about I wanted to mention, but uh, that's okay. It'll come back in another message and I'll squeeze it in somehow. You know, get it in. Got to get it out one way or the other. He says, uh, Take, made, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Uh, it was in Mark 10.45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Whew. And we're to be like Jesus. Your attitude is be, our attitude is, be, is to be the same as Christ Jesus, it says. He says, being made in human likeness. Notice, it says he was in very nature God. That's clear. He was in very nature. But he came in human likeness because he was still God. He appeared as a man, and he was a man, but he also had that very nature of God always with him, that he was all God and all man. But Bishop Fulton Sheen 
I read uh, a book of his, I guess it's got to be 30 years ago, it was called the, uh, the Life of Christ. And one illustration there he said, which I, I always remembered, he said when we think about God coming as man, he said, the way he tries to think about it, I, I'm sorry, I keep putting my back to you guys there. Uh, well, he, keeps, he said the one way he thinks about it is, he said, if they could transplant a human brain into a dog, he said. And he said, think about the human brain and all the intelligence there being put in a dog's body. He said, think about the frustration you would feel being trapped in this dog's body. All this potential you have, you couldn't speak. You couldn't express things. You couldn't show the fullness of what you really have, he said. And he said, the worst part of all would be you'd have to live with the other dogs. Think about that. The sinless Son of God lived among us. Sinful people. Jesus had to live amongst the sinners. How challenging was that? How, how he could do that? To, how can he live with us, really? I mean, I can't live with you guys. I can't imagine how he could do it. But seriously, it... Uh, you think about that. And that's what he was doing to, to give us, Paul is giving us an example of how far God was willing to go for us and how if we could do that, how we, unity would come. Pride is what keeps unity from happening. And he says it's humility that can bring us together by, by looking at Jesus here. I will move on quickly. He says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, you know, and he says, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He not only took death, he allowed himself to be killed, and he did. Jesus said, right, he, he, lift, he, he can lay down his life or take it up, and he, he allowed himself for that. It's right, he could have called down legions of angels and just said, okay, I'm done here, let's go up. You know, but no, he went through it. And he says, obedient to death on a cross. Deuteronomy tells us that the person who's put on, hung on a tree is cursed. He not only took death, our sin, but he took it in the worst possible, most shameful way. He was naked on the cross. And he was considered the vilest offender by being crucified. Those were the people who were just the most vilest, the worst criminals of all, that they were put on a cross like that. And we see through here, and it moves on then to the exaltation. You know, we're looking at the humiliation of Christ, and then the next part he goes on to say, you know, therefore God you know, made his name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the glory part, exaltation, but it was the humiliation that Paul focuses on here to say, be unified, he said. Give up your pride. Think of others. Don't make it all about you, he says. And you want an example? Look at Jesus. He says, just look at the life of Jesus, he says, and you'll know how to have unity, he says. 
for that. Uh, I think we're going to finish up. Uh, I had a lot more I want to say, but I'm going to uh, I'm going to hold it back today. Maybe an, another time. Uh, I'm thinking of a verse. You know what? Why don't you go there too? I want you to see it. Look at Second Second Corinthians chapter four, uh, chapter eight, verse nine. This really, to me, shows the, what Christ was willing to do and what we, when Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I'm sorry, chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. I must have said chapter 9. Chapter 8. He says, for you know, this is, did I tell you verse 9? Okay, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He says, so that, he says, you through his poverty might become rich. Think of the riches that we have in the salvation of of our soul in Jesus Christ and think what he was willing to give up and then Paul says that our attitude should be the same as that we should be willing to give up what we have to give up for the sake of others is it easy it's easy for me to to say it up here to do it is the hard part but again what does James say do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says, James says. Let's do what it says. Let's, and especially now, we need unity in our church. We need that, and it comes by giving up, ultimately, to give up to others. It's the hardest thing, but with God, we can do it. With the Holy Spirit in us, we can do it. And we're commanded to do it. It's not, when we're told, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a command. Jesus said that all the commands, all the laws and the prophets are boiled down into these two commands. Love God, love your neighbor. I'll leave it at that. Uh, and uh, anything else I want to say, like the, the novelist used to say back in the Victorian era, and that's another story for another time. So with that, would you close your eyes, please? I'd like you just to think for a moment about some of the things that uh, the scriptures said today. And I breezed through them very quickly. I took a large portion and just wanted to give you more of an overview, I guess. But I hope you'll take them and go home and look at them this week and think about just the example of Christ of how we should be living and willing to, to give up our pride like that. The scripture says that God opposes the proud 
but he exalts the humble. He lifts up the humble. In uh, the Sermon on the Mount, if you review that, you see that the first thing that Jesus told the disciples there, the people who were listening, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means those who have an absence of pride, who see that they are sinful and they have nothing to give to God. He says, but for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where you start. That's where you start. And I want to encourage if anyone is here today and you have never confessed your sin to Jesus Christ and put your faith in what he has done for us, for you, I encourage you today to go in a quiet place and cry out to God for mercy, confess your sins, and ask for his mercy. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, Jesus told the story of a, of a Pharisee, a very religious person who did all his religious rituals. And he prayed before God, thank you that I'm not like other men, and that I do this, I give my tithe, I pray every day. And then this sinful tax collector just said, cried out to God, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus said, who do you think went home justified today? It was the one who cried out to God for mercy because he realized he was a sinner and he needed God just the way we need the blood of Christ to forgive our sins. So I encourage you today to get that right if you haven't yet. Father, your word is so deep and uh, I confess that I am so shallow and that we as a people are shallow, Lord, when it comes to really uh, grasping the depth, of, the depth of your truths. But Lord, we have your word and we have the Holy Spirit who illuminates these things and give us, gives us the revelation that we need to know you and to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, as Paul said. So I, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us and you would encourage us and you would help us by those scriptures that we might become the people that you have created us to be, that we might become the church that you have created us to be, that we would be willing to lay down ourselves for one another and be, have a strong unity in this church that you would be glorified in the end always. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.